Well, I hope you're enjoying our service so far. Thanks again for being here at Grace. Um, I was telling first service just how much I love being part of Grace. Love being here, uh, just interacting with people. The, the unity that our church has had, it, it, there's really something special here at Grace Community. If you, I don't know if you've been to other churches or not, but God has really blessed us. There's, a, there's a, just an amazing thing going on, amazing vibe at Grace. So uh, I hope you're appreciating that. I appreciate you guys, love you guys. I don't think there's a better church on the planet. I mean, Grace Community, it's, it's something special. So we're here as a church, brothers and sisters in Christ, unified. That means when we say unity, we do life together. We, we grieve with those who grieve. We celebrate those who celebrate. Matter of fact, uh, Alan and Barbara King, 45 years anniversary. Wave to us. Yeah, right back here. So... Um, just, uh, just a special place. But um, we're talking about a life of unshakable joy and, and the joy that God gives us in Christ and how that should show up in our life. And, and we've been going through a book. It's called Philippians in the New Testament. And it's actually a letter that a guy named Paul wrote to a church in a town named Philippi. And Paul knew them because... Uh, he had actually helped start that church. So I want to, some of the times we've been talking, I give you a little backstory. So I want to remind you of the backstory. Is that all right? For some of you, that's okay. The rest of you just grin and bear it. All right. So right now, as Paul writes this letter, it's 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. Paul has remembered 10 years prior to that, that he actually was on his second missionary journey and they traveled, uh, they were traveling in Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey today. And he was traveling with a guy named Silas, but also two other men, Timothy and, uh, and a guy named Luke. Luke actually wrote two books of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, but also he wrote a book called Acts. And Acts tells us about these journeys and what happened at Philippi that gives us the backstory for this letter that Paul writes while he's under house arrest in Rome. So I'm going to fill that gap in for you, okay? So Paul is ministering in Turkey. They, uh, some doors get closed and he decides that he's going to cross over into Macedonia, which is, which is Europe. And so they do that. They end up in a town, first town in Europe. They preach the gospel in a town called Philippi. As they arrive there, the four of them, their typical MO, the way they did it in Asia, is they would show up and they would go to the local synagogue, and that's where they would start preaching the gospel. No synagogue in Philippi. So by Jewish tradition, what Jewish people would typically do is if there was no synagogue, then on the, on the Sabbath day, they would go out of the city, outside the walls, a lot of times near a body of water, and they would talk about God. Well, that's what was happening here. He goes out to a river. As they go out there, they notice that there's a group of women meeting by the river who are familiar with Judaism, and they are talking about the one true God. Paul uses this as an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus, and he shares this message of Jesus Christ, which we call the gospel, which just means good news, where Paul's basically saying, okay, you know who God is, you know God's our creator, you know uh, about the sacrificial system. He's saying all of that really points to this one person, Jesus Christ, who came as the son of God, 
to be the permanent sacrifice for our sin to make it possible for us to have a relationship with God forever. And so as he shares that good news, that gospel, that Christ died for us, then some of these ladies become believers, specifically one whose name is a lady named Lydia. Lydia is not from Philippi. She's actually from Asia, but she's there. She's a, a businesswoman who deals in purple uh, purple cloth, which was a big expensive deal back then. So she's high in fashion and she's apparently very successful. And then she has the means and the space in her house to invite all four of these guys to come and make her house sort of a base of operations while she hosts them as they continue their ministry in this town, Philippi. As they're doing that, there is a demon-possessed slave girl who tells fortunes, you know, kind of a, a freaky gal who tells fortunes and makes money for her masters. She's continually following Paul and sort of targeting him, and she's yelling out, these are servants of the Most High God showing you the way of salvation. And she's just screaming this all the time everywhere Paul goes. And day after day, kind of freaking Paul out a little bit. And he decides this, this isn't a good thing. Because basically he knows because this girl is demon possessed that what is true now, will, will, if, you give her, if, if he was to give her any credence, will become leading people into error later. We see some other examples of this in the New Testament. But anyway, Paul doesn't like it. So he casts the demon out of this girl. And then all of a sudden she loses the whole mystical, possessed, fortune teller vibe that she had before so all of a sudden she's not that person anymore and she's not making any money for her masters and so they're ticked off so they end up grabbing Paul and Silas now what's interesting as we read through Acts that's where we're getting all this Luke is writing up to this point and it's like we did this and we did this and we did this but as soon as Paul and Silas are arrested, it's and then they did, and then they did, and then they did. So we know Luke didn't get arrested, and either did Timothy. And we don't know exactly why that is, but Paul and Silas are actually both fully Jewish. Luke is not a Jew, and Timothy is half Jewish. So we don't know what the deal is. Maybe that's why they didn't get arrested or maybe Timothy was just kind of a, a bystander and wasn't taking leadership so they weren't offended by what he was saying. But Luke and, uh, sorry, Paul and Silas are then taken up to the authorities. Uh, they're charged, you know, these people are, are mad because of what he did to the slave girl and then they strip them publicly, beat them and throw them into prison. But Paul is is the guy who has this life of unshakable joy, just like we should. And so in the middle, he's been beaten bloody, but in the middle of the night, he and Silas are singing out praises to God in the middle of this prison. Shortly thereafter, there is a sudden earthquake. Cell doors are jarred loose. Chains come off. They're free to go. The jailer, the guy in charge of the jail, realizes, whoa, cell doors are sprung open, the, the earthquake wakes him up too, and he realizes, whoa, prisoners are gone. I'm a dead man. That's the punishment. Rather than go through what, what the authorities are going to put me through for losing these prisoners, I'm just going to kill myself. He gets ready to commit suicide, and just before that happens, Paul cries out and says, hey, don't harm yourself. We're still here. We haven't left. 
Well, this rocks the jailer's world more than the earthquake. And he pulls Paul and Silas out of jail and says, I want what you have. I want to know the God that you know. And so he becomes a believer. That night, he takes Paul and Silas to his house, wakes everybody up, has them explain about Jesus Christ. His family then becomes believers. They have a baptismal service during the same night. They follow God in baptism. And then the jailer is taking care of Paul and Silas, giving them food, bandaging their wounds. And about this time is dawn. As dawn comes, the officials of the city of Philippi send word to the jailer, hey, you can go ahead and let those guys out. We've beat them. We've jailed them. I think they've learned their lesson. You can spring those guys loose. The jailer's pretty excited about that, tells Paul. And uh, Paul says, eh, not so fast. What? Well, hey, messenger, go back and tell the authorities that they have stripped and beaten and jailed a Roman citizen without a trial or an accusation. This kind of freaks everybody out. Nobody would guess that they were Roman citizens. They all know they came from the east, not the west. And so this is a big turmoil. Well, man, when the authorities hear that, they take a lot of pride in that uh, Philippi has been named a Roman colony because of something happened about 100 years before when there was a big battle and this town sided with Rome. They were given special status. And now here they are. They realize as city magistrates, they violated Roman law. So they're bummed. So they rush to the prison and basically beg. We're assuming the jailer's house was next to the prison. And they beg for Paul and Silas to leave the town quietly and, and kind of just forget this ever happened. So Paul, after he gets this kind of public apology in front of the city, doesn't leave immediately, but he goes by and he meets with the church again, Lydia, some of the other believers, and the brethren, it says in Acts. So we already know that there's some men who have also come to Christ at that point. They then leave Philippi, do some more ministering. A few a couple years later, Paul ends up in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem ministering, but he's also hanging around some Greek, some Gentiles, some non-Jewish people, because he's been telling them about how to become a follower of Christ too. The Jewish authorities don't like Paul because he's preaching something a little different, that Jesus came as Messiah. They're not liking that so much. They spread a false rumor that Paul has allowed, has brought non-Jewish people into a place in the temple, the inner court, that is reserved for Jewish men. This causes a riot on the Temple Mount. And we hear about riots today on the Temple Mount, right? Same kind of thinking, and that's the Muslims that are doing that. There's a riot on the Temple Mount. They go in, they drag Paul out into the outer court, and they start beating him. And their intention is to beat him to death. There's a Roman commander with a garrison right next to the Temple Mount, who hears about the riot, his job is to keep peace in the city. He rushes into the outer court with an entourage of soldiers. They break it up, and he ends up rescuing a bloody and beaten Paul. He throws Paul in jail, trying to figure out what, what crime he's committed. There's a little confusion on that. He decides, I'll just interrogate, interrogate Paul for them, and that time meant just flog him until he tells you what, what you want to know. As they prepare, as they tie him up and prepare to flog him, a centurion is getting ready to do this. Paul mentions to the centurion this time, before he gets the, 
the beating, where last time he didn't mention it till afterwards, probably to protect the church of Philippi. This time, he does it before the beating. and says, well, as you're getting ready to beat me, are, are you going to beat a Roman citizen without a trial? Whoa, freaks the centurion out. He sends word to the Roman commander. The commander then, whoa, serious deal, comes up, finds out, and he realizes he's not brought a charge against Paul. So he, they don't do anything, and he realizes he needs formal charges. So he arranges for a meeting the next day. They bring in the Jewish leadership who are accusing Paul to meet with Paul, and he sits in on this meeting to find out, hey, what's up? What's going on? What's this man charged with? Paul's a pretty smart guy, and, and uh, he, as he interacts with everybody, he gets all these people arguing amongst themselves. The Jewish people start arguing with other Jewish authorities, the, uh, the Roman commander is kind of frustrated. He just says, forget it. He puts Paul back in jail. He's trying to figure out what to do. That night, Paul hears from his nephew that the rumor is that there are 40 Jewish men that have taken a vow to not eat again until they see Paul dead. Paul has his nephew take that to the, the centurion who takes him to the commander and tells the thing. The commander realizes, hey, things are getting kind of dicey here. I don't want any more riots. I don't want Paul to be off while he's in custody. So he arranges for Paul to be secretly taken out to Caesarea, surrounded by hundreds of Roman soldiers. They do that. They take him to Caesarea, about 50 miles away on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And that's where the governor of the whole Roman province is. His name is Felix. A few days later, the accusers of Paul figure out where he's at. They come to bring formal charges to Felix about Paul. As they do that, and Felix is interacting with them, Felix realizes, hey, this guy's no ordinary guy. He's a Roman citizen. He defends himself very well. And he's got a lot of friends on the outside, outside of jail. So Felix decides, well, I'm just going to put Paul on ice. And then his friends will offer me a bribe. And then I'll make a little extra scratch. Paul can go free, everybody's happy, but that doesn't happen. And then Paul sits in a jail in Caesarea for two years. In the meantime, at the end of the two years, there's a new sheriff in town. Festus takes over as Roman governor. He replaces Felix. When that happens, the Jewish people know about it. They come from Jerusalem, renew their charges against Paul so he won't be released. As Festus is trying to figure all this out, he, tells, he, he realizes, hey, the best way to get to the bottom of this is take Paul back to Jerusalem and have a trial there. Paul's smart enough to know that he, they, taking Paul back to Jerusalem and telling all the, Jews, the Jewish leaders there that that's going to happen, that he's a dead man. They'll kill him in rout. They'll kill him during the trial. They'll kill him. You know, he, they will kill him. So then he pulls his last card that he has as a Roman citizen. He appeals to Caesar. This kind of ties Festus's hands. He when a Roman citizen does this, that's what you do. And so he makes arrangements for Paul then to go to Rome. And actually, Rome is one of the places that Paul wanted to go and preach the gospel because he wanted to impact the capital of the empire. And so a few months later, Paul finds himself on a ship. They're getting ready to cross the Mediterranean Sea. It's getting toward the, the end of the time of sailing season when it's safe. And as they go across, Paul, they start hitting rough weather that impedes their progress and then Paul gets a, a, a prompting from God that this ship is going down and so he tells the people running the ship and the commander hey I think the ship's going down I think we ought to just dock somewhere and, and sit out the winter like a lot of people would do in that time 
They don't want to do that. They say, no, we're going to complete this mission and get on with it. I don't want to winter here on some island. And so, but the storm worsens. It worsens so bad that finally the ship is out of control. They sort of cut the anchor, cut everything, and they just, they're just blown and just kind of let themselves go wherever the wind takes them. They end up on the rocks off the shore of an island called Malta, and when they hit those rocks, they're beaten by the surf, and the ship starts breaking apart. As that happens, the soldiers then unleash their weapons to prepare to kill all the prisoners on the ship, not just Paul, but him too, because that's a standard operating procedure. You don't let prisoners escape. And as they're doing that, though, the commander realizes he deviates from the standard operating procedure, and he says, no, he's kind of got developed a soft spot for Paul, and he says, we're not going to kill him. Whoever can swim, swim for the beach over there, and if he can't swim, uh, take a piece of the ship, take a plank, take a piece of wood with you, and try to paddle the shore. Well, that's what happens. They all abandon ship, and all of them amazingly make it to shore as their ship is beaten to smithereens and then sinks. They winter on the island. The next spring... They contract with another ship that stops at the island to take them to Rome. Paul goes to Rome. He still doesn't have formal charges. So when he gets there, they allow him to have a rented house at his own expense. He does that. The only drawback is that he's chained to one of the Praetorian guards 24-7 in six-hour shifts. As he's kind of sitting in house arrest... Timothy, who's been trying to catch up with Paul, hears that he's been arrested, and Timothy makes his way to Rome probably some months later. And then he shows up, and he's trying to help Paul, probably bringing Paul some money because he's still got to pay rent and all that. In the meantime, the church in Philippi, who's been helping Paul a little bit, spread the gospel to other cities just like he brought the gospel to them. They decide they're going to get a care package together and send that to Rome. And so as they do that, they pick out one of their men of the city. It's a guy named Epaphroditus. They give Epaphroditus some money. They send him to Paul to help Paul while he's under house arrest, pay his rent. And so Epaphroditus shows up. He does that. But rather than just deliver and come back, he stays in Rome and helps Paul and Timothy with Paul's ministry in Rome. He's doing that. Epaphroditus gets real sick. He gets so sick that it looks like he's going to die. And in the meantime, during those months he's sick, the, his home church in Philippi, they hear that Epaphroditus is sick in Rome and maybe will die. And then in the, a few months go by and then the people in Rome, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus hear that the church in Philippi knows that Epaphroditus was sick and about to die and are fearing the worst. And then that brings us up to now, Paul decides that he's going to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi so they won't be worried. And as he sends Epaphroditus back, he pins this letter from, from house arrest to tell, and it's the letter that we call Philippians. So we up where we're at? Just a good reminder there? Okay. Now we left off in chapter 2, right? In the middle of chapter 2 last time. And what Paul was telling us is that we need to work out our salvation, we talked a little bit about what that meant. Work out our salvation doesn't mean work for our salvation or work to be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying work out our salvation. And we talked last time about what that really meant was working out our salvation is when we become believers, we believe certain things but it, and, and we have responded to Christ in faith, but with true believers, it always shows up in your life. That's the working out. 
that your life is changed. The way you interact with people changes. The way you live around everybody notices you're a different person. Working out your salvation means your salvation, the fact of your salvation, shows up in the way you live. Now, leaving off in verse 13 of chapter 2, and now starting with verse 14, he, Paul is going to explain more about how we live out or work out our salvation. And basically, we're, we're going to learn some things. And, and here's the problem. When we become a Christian, it's because we've received the gospel. And the gospel really just means good news. It's just, uh, it's good news. That's all the gospel means. But it's news. It's information that Christ has done something for us. And when we know that, then we have this opportunity that God gives us to respond in faith. When I say respond in faith, I mean responding in faith means, faith as, as a verb, faith means that we believe who Jesus is, the Son of God who clothed himself in humanity, and, what he, and that we trust in what he did, that he died on the cross for our sins, and we trust that his death was sufficient to pay for our sins before God. Because that's a part of the gospel is the bad news is that we've all sinned against God. That's what Paul was telling the ladies in Philippi. Hey, you know about this God. You know we've been created by God. But you also know we've all sinned against this God. That's why we have the whole sacrificial system and everything to teach us. Sin is serious. It has to be paid for. A just God cannot ignore our sin. And the just punishment of our sin is separation from God forever. But because God loves us, he allowed his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and pay for our sin penalty so a just God can see that the penalty has been paid and then through faith grant us forgiveness. The problem with us as believers today is that we believe that all that's true, but the way we live our life, it doesn't seem like we believe all that's true. Does that make sense? As Christians today, we know all the truth from Scripture. You know, we get it. The, the main part of it, we understand. And we've embraced it. And we trust in it. But the way we live our lives, it doesn't match up a lot of times. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? There are areas in our life where we're living, we're not living what we believe. There's a gap in between what we know is true and how we're living our lives. Because in some areas, we're living our lives as if we don't know this is true. Or as if we don't really believe it. Paul is going to show us how to live out our faith. How to work out our salvation. So we can close this gap between what we know to be true and what shows up in our lives. And he's basically going to going to do that in three ways. But before I get there, so here's what we're going to do. In this next segment of scripture, which is the last half of chapter two, we're going to answer three questions. One, you know, what does it mean to, to live out your faith? How do we live out our faith? How do we close that gap? How do we do that? How do we close the gap? How does that translate into life? And then two, 
has anybody done that? Is there, you know, we're talking about things from the Bible all the time, but when rubber meets the road and it's talking about us doing this, do we have any examples of this? And then we're going to see how, we're going to ask the question, well, when's this going to show up in our life? All right, so we're going to answer those three questions. So the first thing that we're getting to is that first, very first question, and that is, you know, what does it mean to close the gap? Because Paul's saying the responsibility is on us. So, and Paul's telling us, here's how you close the gap. Here's how you close the gap between what you know to be true and how you're living your life, which is not always like you know that that's true. He basically says, live out, shine out, and hold out. So I'm going to show you that. We left off in verse 14, so that's, that's where we're at. And he's basically telling us, as believers, our life should be different. And he's telling we should live out our faith. We should live out our Christianity. And here's what he says. So he starts this way. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And we're just going to have to stop right there. <laughs> Do all things. Wow. Okay. All things without grumbling or disputing. And it's kind of like, you got to be kidding me. When he says grumbling, it's just what, how we take grumbling. It's the griping that we do in circumstances. Now, primarily, Paul's writing this to the church in Philippi. And I got to tell you, the church in Philippi is a rock-solid church. It's a great church. They started good. I mean, they're, they're unified. They're, they're helping Paul. They're doing a lot of good things. They sent Epaphroditus. Good church. But Paul from Epaphroditus apparently knows some things that there's people in the church kind of griping about stuff. So he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The grumbling, grumbling is griping. It's sort of an emotional response to things we don't like that comes out of our mouth. That makes sense? We all know what griping is, right? Anybody ever gripe? Yeah, we look around. You know, yeah, we, we, we've all done that. Or, you know, so yeah, we've all done that, griping and, or disputing. He says, without grumbling or disputing. Disputing is sort of the intellectual side. It's the intellectual response of our griping. It's, we gripe, that's sort of the emotion, oh, I can't believe this. But then the disputing is the argument that comes from our lips where we're saying, you know, I shouldn't really have to do this because of X, Y, and Z. You know, that's the disputing part. It's the, it's the wrong intellectual argument that we use to justify our griping. And so we hear this, and at first we're thinking, okay, I get this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. But then, we're, then we catch something. Oh, all things. All things. I mean, we all do some things without grumbling or disputing. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying do all things. And we say, bummer. All things. All things. So he's telling us, we are not to be, he's saying, live out your faith without grumbling or disputing. Live out your faith. As a matter of fact, this verse is a verse that my wife Pam put on our refrigerator for years. <laughs> By the way, that was for the kids. <laughs> I don't want you, I'm sure she didn't have me in mind when she stuck that on the refrigerator. 
But we all get this, right? Do all things. He's saying, live, at, he, he's saying, live out your, the whole book is about joy. Live out your faith, joy. Can, by the way, can we have joy while we're griping and disputing, while we're complaining? The correct answer would be, no, we cannot. You cannot have joy at the same time that you're grumbling, griping, complaining, disputing. It just doesn't happen that way. So Paul's saying, here's the fix. Stop doing that. Live with joy. That's what he's telling us. And then, and, and we might want to ask, well, this is a pretty tall order, Paul, who's writing for God. And so we say, why? Why all things? Why everything? Why without grumbling? I like to grumble. I like to, I'm an arguer. I like to dispute. Why? And then he tells us, verse 15. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He's saying live out your Christian faith without griping or complaining so that you will shine out. He's sowing so that you're living out your faith in a way that people notice you're living differently. You're not living like the rest of the generation you're in. You're showing up with a different life and people start getting, oh, this is because that guy or that gal, she's a Christian. That's why. So it shows up. So it's live out, shine out. Check the next, uh, next phrase here. Among whom, the last part of 15, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So let's get that whole verse now. Why, why don't complain, grumble? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And this appear as in the Greek is shine out. So we live out in order that we shine out in our generation. That they, they see us as a bright light of something different in a dark generation. And they start understanding that's because we have a relationship with Jesus. That's what he's called us to do. Live out, shine out, and now he's going to tell us to hold out. Next verse. Verse 16. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. It says holding fast the word. Now, there's, there's a little bit of a controversy here. It doesn't really make that big of a difference. But this can be translated as holding forth or holding fast. And, but it kind of says two different things. One is holding fast, the way, the way the NASB chose to translate this, is meaning holding fast. And we get the picture of you're hanging on to your faith. You don't want to lose your faith. You want to be faithful and rock solid. But I believe this is best translated holding forth holding out, which is really all about holding out what? The word of life. Well, what's the word of life? It's the gospel. 
We live out our faith. We live out, we live different lives so that we will shine out among other people that are around us. And then we hold out the gospel, the good news. So when they see that our life is different, we say, well, it's different because of what Jesus has done for me. Oh, you're a Christian. Yeah, I've been forgiven and, I, and, and, and Christ gives joy in my life. Oh, well, I could have never do that because I've done this, this, this. Yeah, I get that. We've all messed up. We've all offended God. We've all done wrong. We've all deserved punishment. But God's offering all of us forgiveness. And it's, it's free. We can't earn it. It's a gift. And he draws us. He wants us to accept it. He invites us in. All we have to do is respond with faith. By believing Jesus was who he said he was. And trusting that his death on the cross paid for our sin just like he said it would. That's it. Holding forth, holding out the word of life. So we get this. Okay, he's calling us to close the gap by living a different way so that we shine out amongst the people that are around us. They see something different. And then when they ask us about that, or they don't ask, maybe we just tell them about it. We're holding out the word of God, the gospel, the good news, that God loves them no matter who they are, what they've done, what their circumstances, where they're living right now, what situation they're in. It doesn't matter. God loves everyone and he offers all to come to respond in faith, free. Okay, well, if that's how we, that's how we live out our faith, if that's what, how we close the gap, I think sometimes the problem is we sit here Sunday after Sunday and we hear what God's calling us to do, but that all just seems like first century stuff. And we're thinking, well, I don't know how much that applies in my life. But Paul's saying, hey, you can do this. So the next question we want to answer is, who's done this? Who has closed the gap? And I know the first thought some may think is, well, actually, Jesus closed the gap because, I mean, he came and made it even possible. I get that. But, not in, but Jesus didn't close the gap the way we're talking. What we're t- the gap we're talking about is between what we know to be true and how we live our life, the gap. Jesus had no gap. Jesus knew what was true and his life perfectly conformed to that. There was no gap between what Jesus believed and how he lived. He had no gap. So Jesus is not our example of this, Right? We have to turn to people. So who? Well, right in this passage, as we continue on, we're going to pick up three examples of people who close the gap in their life. And the first one is Paul, the guy that's writing the letter. He's not meaning to put himself as an example, but he does. And here's what he says in verse 17. Next verse. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering... Upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Notice that that phrase, I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice. 
he's bringing up this image of in the Old Testament as God was teaching us about his commands and how far we've missed God's righteousness and how every single person has. He gave them a sacrificial system, which was to teach them, number one, sin is really serious. To fix sin, it's death, it's life. And that they would take a bull and sacrifice it. Now, if you could imagine how big of a fire you would need to completely consume a sacrifice like that, an animal. So we got, this is a hot fire, a big fire. What they would do toward the end of that, after the animal is burning, is they would then take a cup of wine and they would pour that out onto the sacrifice. Well, when they did that with, with, a, with a fire that hot, it would just sort of vaporize the wine and, and you know, it would just go up in steam. And then that was sort of a picture of this sacrifice going up to God to say, God, I know that I've sinned against you. And here is my temporary thing that you've given me that I could do to temporarily sort of fix our relationship as you teach me that sin is very serious and blood needs to be spilt in order to fix that. It, it's life. And so... And I think when we read this, a lot of times we're thinking, that's Paul talking about the end of his life because he doesn't know if he's going to die. I, I don't think that's the image Paul has in mind here, but I know he has that image in other places. I think here, this is all present tense. He's saying, I'm pouring out my life. He's saying, I'm, I'm living to serve God. I'm, I'm living for you. I'm spending my life in order to share with you the joy of knowing Jesus. That's what I'm currently doing as, he, as I sit in house arrest. It's what I've been doing. He's saying, I'm right now spending my life to share with you so more and more people in Philippi and other places would know the joy of knowing Christ, that your sins could be forgiven, that you could be reconciled with a righteous and holy God, even though you don't deserve it. And the joy that brings, that's what he's saying. So we have the example of Paul. Paul's a pretty tough example to live up to. But then the next thing, Paul mentions somebody else. He mentions Timothy. Timothy is an example of another man who closed the gap between what he believed and how he lived his life to bring them together. Verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming." So he's basically saying, hey, Timothy's here. He's mentioned him at the beginning of the letter. And Epaphroditus is taking this letter to Philippi. Hey, he's okay. He's showing up with this communication. And by the way, Timothy, I'm planning on sending to you. I'm waiting to see how the court case, because the justice wheels of Rome move pretty slowly here. Been here for, for some years. And I'm waiting to see what's going to happen. But I hope soon to send Timothy with word with do I live or die or what's going on next set of instructions kind of a thing. But in that, he's, he's describing Timothy. 
He's saying, hey, this guy doesn't live for himself, for his own interests, just kind of what we were talking about before. He's living for the interests of others. He's living to serve me and the gospel. He's living to serve you. He's living to further the gospel so that other people will hear and can have joy in Christ. So he holds Timothy up as an example. But that's not all. And we all know Paul and Timothy, okay, those are heavy hitters. Well, he mentions another guy, Epaphroditus. He says this, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow, he says. And continuing, therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. So he's just saying, hey, Epaphroditus is your guy. You sent him because you wanted to help and you couldn't help any other way but to get it to me. So you sent him to serve me. He not only brought the gift that allows me the freedom to write these letters, but he also stayed on in Rome to help minister. During staying on, he got really sick. In the old times, that, that doesn't go so well. But hey, he's okay. You get to see him. Be joyful. You know, and it's just a celebration. And then he calls Epaphroditus. Hey, he's messenger. He's minister. Your guys is minister to me, Paul's saying. But what's he calling? My brother. My fellow worker. My fellow soldier. I mean, this is how... Here, who's Epaphroditus? Just some guy in Philippi who, who decided to do something that needed to be done. Take the gift. This was a huge journey, hundreds of miles. Not easily done, but he goes. It begs the question, what about us? What are we doing? How will we Close the gap between what we know to be true and what's showing up in our lives. What are the areas in our life where we're not really living like we believe this is true? What areas in our life are inconsistent with what we know God's told us? Worry, that would be one. You know, the way... We live out our sexual life. That, that could be one. I mean, it doesn't, any area, our marriage, any area, where are we living, where we're saying we know this is true, but these areas of our life, they're inconsistent with that. Close the gap. Live out. Live out your faith in the way that people could see it and the way your family can see it, the way your church family can see it too. Shine out. People around you notice something different. Hold out, know the gospel, and want that for people because of the joy it's brought to your own life. That's how he leaves us. That's the challenge. How this week will we close the gap? Will we live out, shine out, hold out?
in response to what God has done for us, to close the gap between what we believe and how we're living our life. Let's stand for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you for the book of Philippians and thank you for those of us who are believers. Not that we're any better than anyone else, we're not. We don't deserve salvation. Lord, you just offered it and we said yes. And Father, we know standing here amongst us, brothers and sisters in Christ, are also people that we care about and love, our neighbors, friends, coworkers, relatives, Lord, that, uh, that don't know you. And Father, we pray uh, that you'll draw them to yourself, that they'll begin to see the truth of your word and your message and your gospel, and that, that, that they would be able to respond. And we pray that they keep coming to hear your truth, either here or some other place where your word is proclaimed clearly, and then respond. God, we thank you for loving us. And thank you that you're a God who wants us to have joy. God, thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Hope to see you next Sunday. Hey, if you have questions, maybe you're not a believer and, and want to know how to, you have some questions about that or something, we'll be happy to talk to you in room one as you're exiting on your left.